Hello, Podcast Nation. You are listening to my autobiography, Tina Lives, written and read by me, Tina. Who am I? Nobody. But when asked the simplest questions in life, like, where are you from? There was never a simple answer. So I decided to jot the answers down in a book about growing up hippie, surviving the South, and getting the hell out, which is why Tina Lives. Episode 12, 1983, 21 and pregnant. As I recall it, I took a very long nap, crashing on a friend's couch, and when I awoke, I was pregnant past the point of no return. There had been no distinguishing difference between the deep hormonal exhaustion of creating life and the woolly warm embrace of a narcotic nod. Besides the fact that living my life as a junkie had become a full-time job, I spent my days, which blurred into nights, assiduously hustling up money, drugs, compassion, and a cot of comfort to rest my corrupted and cloudy head, never once noticing that the blood that made me female had ceased to exist. In the purest of a karmic coincidence, it happened in the fertile month of Maypole May when I encountered Joe at a jazz bar on a night when the misty spring air imbibes you with the pleasures of potentiality. Joe, the bearer of unrequited love for me, and the person I considered the nucleus of my present-day predicament, was unwittingly about to transform my life once again. We sat together at a table, sipping cocktails, glowing our best reflections under the soft lighting of an intimate stage, all the while pretending that we had no past, because for Joe, there wasn't a past, only the present, only tonight. And despite the path that I had chosen, trying to get as far away from that fateful, frightful night at a payphone located on a dead-end street. For me, Joe still sparkled. There was one thing that Joe and I did have in common, the love of music. It moved us and narrated what was, what could, and what would never be. So the female lounge singer who was crooning on and on about how she felt like making love was lovingly suggesting an outcome to this serendipitous night. Joe wasn't looking at me like I was crazy or invisible, which is how he used to do. He was looking at me like a man with needs, immediate needs, and every time his eyes met mine, my heart would flutter and skip a beat. as we danced softly all the way home to his bed. 
It wasn't the magic that I had always envisioned. It was instead the most awkward 10 minutes of my life. The act itself was dry, dead, and perfunctory, which in the end illuminated a perversely sad and deflating truth. I had ruined my life for nothing. Joe and I had zilch in the chemistry or in the love Love fandango. fandango. I had made it all up, just like the musings of my childhood, which used to console me. But those were without consequence, and this farcical fancy was not. The repercussion of a one-night stand that took years in the making left me with only one option. I was too pregnant to abort, so I had a baby coming. Before the second syllable of the word pregnant escaped from my mouth, I could see Joe's spirit slink silently backward, floating off into the distance, far, far away from what his tortured face revealed as possibly the biggest mistake of his life. Of course it pissed me off to see his immediate reaction, but despite my current condition in life, I was still a person of pride. And a person of pride takes responsibility for their actions. So in the most authoritative tone I could summons up, I assured him that he was off the hook. I needed and wanted nothing more from him other than to inform. I truly did mean this, even though the romantic dreamer in me hoped that his sentiment would have been otherwise. I was confident that we could overcome his sexual misfiring if we committed to the role of parents and in the happy ever after of a burgeoning family. The pregnancy hormones became my new drug, a happy, healing, selfless drug that encouraged me to get my shit together. I grew attached to the ideal of having a child, so attached that quitting the teas and blues came easy, and the only real question was how much damage had been done to the baby child who, without my knowing, had been my constant companion and drug buddy for three solid months. Sue and her husband Gary invited me to live with them for the duration of the pregnancy in their country-style home on the outskirts of town. And in yet another bizarre twist for someone who easily acquired parental figures but received very little parenting, they offered to legally adopt me at the age of 21. I sure did think it was strange and peculiar and not necessarily done out of love, at least not for the love of me. Sue and I had not been close lately. She had her life and I had mine, which is how we had been operating for quite some time. But we were tethered together for reasons unknown in this lifetime, maybe mystical, and I never knew how to categorize our relationship. I never had the words. But their offer felt like a responsible adult decision 
made specifically for the life that was about to be. And in the process, I finally had the words to describe my 10-year-old relationship with Sue. Adopted mom. While living in my new home, temporary home, with my new temporary parents, as I saw it anyway, I put my addiction to work by getting three different jobs in an earnest attempt to prepare for my baby. I also acquired a new best friend, Robert. Robert was gay, but not necessarily comfortable as such because there was nothing comfortable about being a gay man in the South in the early 80s, especially when your father was a strict evangelical preacher with the value system of a tyrant. Robert had a style that on technicality blended in, and yet he stood out, which may have been the gay that he was trying so desperately to deceive. In the looks department, he had a spongy yet firm build of medium height, and his short, dark hair, cut military style, accentuated his icy pale complexion and his icy pale blue eyes. In many ways, he looked very much like Joe. I met him at Kmart, where we both worked as cashiers. We were instantly captivated by each other, like past-life lovers without all the present-day baggage. I was mesmerized by his soft and sincere personality and wooed by his puppy-dog attachment. Without really knowing me, he believed in me, which brought out the best in me and the timing of such an affirmation was pivotal to the welfare of my baby child. Like a love-struck couple, we dedicated and dictated poems back and forth to one another, sliding them surreptitiously between the cash registers where we stood for eight long hours. One of his poems was for a man he once loved who committed suicide by jumping out of a window. In this poem, he wondered out loud whether or not he should join his love through the astral door. But in the end, he decided to wait until he had more of a purpose to leave this world behind. His proclamation unnerved me as did his declaration that our friendship was giving him the courage to come out of the closet to his parents, whom he would soon be visiting in Louisiana. He told me that they were stern and religious, but they loved him, and that should be all that mattered, which of course it should be. But I wasn't very optimistic about the outcome, and I felt like our friendship was giving him false hope about the rest of the world. I didn't want to be responsible for hurting him, so I asked him if he would help me raise my baby. I thought his parents might appreciate that a lot more than his other news. He was touched and honored and said that he would be happy to do so. 
And there it was, another adult decision made. In the beginning of my eighth month, I was mammoth-sized, exhausted, and more than anything, scared out of my mind. As of yet, I did not have any baby paraphernalia. No crib, no clothes, and no bottles. The only baby item I had acquired so far was a 10-pack of washcloths. Feeling down and washed out in my oversized industrial green Kmart smock, I leaned my very large belly and bloated breasts on a jewelry case, trying to take the pressure off my swollen feet. Robert and Debbie, a woman who was our friend and fellow employee, walked over and asked me how I was doing. Without skipping a beat, I blurted out, I wish someone would just take this baby. Those impulsive words about an option that strangely I had never even considered laid bare on the Kmart counter waiting for their meaning and intention to expose itself. And without hesitation, Debbie replied, I know someone who will adopt your baby, my sister. Debbie was a Christian, but we got along very well. I was, by all rights, a heathen, and I didn't believe or not believe in God until I was in trouble, and then I prayed like hell. So in this unexpected moment, I took this encounter as a message not to be ignored. For me, the Christian life didn't work, but maybe it would work for my baby. Someone or something was offering my baby a better way of life, and possibly even a better mother than me. There was no time for contemplation. The baby was due in a month, so guided by instinct only, I decided to give the baby up for adoption. I was immediately sent to a fancy doctor who treated me like a queen and told me how brave and selfless I was, which only confirmed that even he didn't think I would be a good mother. And he didn't even know me. But he did know track marks, and my body was scarred with them. February 1984, Rock a Bye-Bye Baby. On the second day of February, I went into labor while watching David Letterman. I had moved out of Sue and Gary's house and was living in a trailer in the barren wasteland of Southwest Little Rock. By odd coincidence, Joe's best friend Lynn happened to be staying with me. He was homeless, and the plan was that he would drive me to the hospital in return for the comfort of the floor that he was now sleeping on. But when I walked into the living room, I didn't have the heart to wake him up, so I tiptoed right over him and drove myself to the hospital, stereotypically running every red light, hoping that the police would stop me 
and then escort me the rest of the way. It took a long time to give birth to the baby, and the labor became a long-winded dream of pain and sleep due to a medication they gave me called Twilight. I gave birth to a healthy-weighted, fully-limbed, and robustly gorgeous little baby girl, and she and I spent three days together in the hospital, bonding before they whisked her away. When she was with me, I couldn't get enough of her, and I hated when she left the room. I didn't believe in miracles, nor did I believe that babies were miracles, because childbirth was, after all, basic biology. But my baby looked like a miracle, and I began to understand the misuse of that word. She smelled so fresh and pure, a scent like no other, the scent of love and redemption and I would put my nose to her head for hours and just leave it there. I held her tightly to my broken heart, and then I would gaze into her sadly wise and wounded eyes. I could tell that she knew something, everything, and she wasn't at all happy about it. She didn't want me to give her away, and I didn't want to let her go. She was the first perfect thing I had ever done in my life. And now, I was just throwing it all away. Joe didn't come to the hospital to see his baby, but he did call. His voice no longer excited me, and for the first time ever, I actually hated him. Robert, my sweet poetry-writing friend from Kmart, sat with me as the man in my life, and all the nurses thought he was the father. We didn't correct them otherwise, and it was strange because Robert looked so very much like Joe. The nurses who knew about the adoption walked on eggshells around me, and I felt simultaneously like the best and the worst person in the world. Robert did his best to cheer me up, and he was good for a laugh, especially when he wore, with oblivion, his tight white jeans that could never hide the gay man living inside them. On my last night with Lindsay, which is what the new parents named her, the nurses asked me what I would like for a special meal. I thought it was rude because the last thing on my mind was food. I asked Robert what he wanted, a steak. The next day, a lawyer showed up with the official paperwork for a closed adoption. The minute he walked into the room, I began to sob. I couldn't say a word, which left Sue in charge of reading all the legalese that bound me to a decision I was beginning to doubt. I didn't want to break my commitment to the adoptive parents because I knew how bad it felt to lose a child. But a strange thought had come to me the night before. It seemed reasonable to think that people who tried to have children and couldn't weren't supposed to, and maybe I was. But everything was moving so quickly, I never got control of my thoughts or my emotions, and after several reluctant signatures, they took Lindsay from my arms and out of my life for good. Gone was the sweet smell of innocence. Gone was my redemption. 
and gone was the only part of my heart that had ever felt true love. I couldn't return to the trailer. Instead, I went back to Sue and Gary's country-style home on the outskirts of town, where I sobbed, whimpered, and wailed for a solid week. When I returned to my job at Kmart, it was then that my disdain for Southern Christian women took a hold of me with a vice-gripped passion. Everyone who worked there knew that Debbie's sister had adopted my child. But one by one, with their shiny crucifixes glaring in my face, they would walk up and ask me, How's the baby doing? How's motherhood? Each and every time my heart sunk to my feet and I felt like a low-life loser, which is exactly what they wanted. They wanted me to feel like a criminal and they wanted me to hurt. I bottled the rage because I needed my job and I would just reply, the baby is fine. <laughs>